Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and how it informs our lives today. I'm your local mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live here in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. At the end of the program last week, we were talking about beauty, which is something that we have a very curious relationship to, I think. We are drawn to beauty. We need it. James Hillman, the depth psychologist, said that our longing for beauty is so deep that we all try to obtain it in some way. But yet, when we hear about beautiful people, especially in fairy tales, we often frown. Talking about the beautiful princess, it seems, you know, superficial, just too pat. And maybe that's because this, the beautiful princess in, this, in the fairy tale already seems so idealized. Or because we feel like we want to rebel against her as part of our rebellion against a tyranny of standards about beauty that many of us feel that we can't live up to. I mean, having the beautiful princess be the one who always gets the prince at some level kind of seems like a rebuke to us ordinary human beings. But beauty is essential. And as I suggested last week, the concept of beauty in these stories is much larger than physical appearance. It has also to do with feeling uh, and where those feelings take us. Our soul longs to experience the beauty in people and the things outside of us. And we also long to express the beauty that is within each one of us and to have that recognized by other people, to be seen. And that is going to be an important idea in the story that I'm going to tell today. Now, last week's story of Sir Gawain and Lady Ragnell, she was hideously ugly but was transformed back into her authentic, beautiful form when the knight looked past her outward shape to see into her eyes. He looked into her soul. He saw the sorrow there and connected with that. He saw what was beautiful about her, and his ability to empathize, to reach out with compassion, was itself beautiful and made him beautiful. And when we often talk about people who were beautiful souls, we usually mean that the person has a great sensitivity or gentleness or generosity of spirit. And that is one way to think about this beauty. Now, the transformation of Lady Ragnell was complete when he gave her what women really want, the right to exercise their own free will, sovereignty. And recognizing the autonomy of another is a recognition of value. It's another expression of seeing the beauty. And autonomy is, in many ways, the same way as sort of giving life to something. The ability to see the beauty in someone or something is essential to love. We love the things that we find beautiful. And the beautiful thing about that is that in finding that beauty, that experience engenders love. 
the more we move into the particular beauty of something that we love, that we are attracted to, the more deeply we fall. And we know this is true for one reason, because we don't all see beauty in the same things or people. You know, how how many times have you, you know, observed a friend and thought to yourself, gee, you know, what does he or she see in him, her? You know, we have friends who get attracted to people and we can't figure out what that's about. And that's because real love is love of the particular. When somebody says to you, I love you, (laughs) that's what particular individual saying that to you. There's a stamp of uniqueness there. Of course, this ability to see the beauty in others and the love that that engenders applies to us. That is, we need to be able to look into the depths of what is unlovely in ourselves. Self-love, as I suggested last week, is not about ignoring or glossing over what we reject in ourselves. It's learning to re- embrace those aspects. Um, there's a writer psychologist named Treby Johnson who did a really lovely reading of this story of Gawain and Ragnell. And I want to just pull this one piece out of an essay that she wrote. Johnson said, quote, daring to touch the unbeautiful we realize that not only are we not dragged down into something loathsome, but that just the reverse occurs. We feel empowered, joyous, connected with each other. To give beauty to our own misshapen selves, to another person, to a group of people, even to a damaged place on the earth, is to move past the fear or repugnance that keep us separate from life itself. To restore beauty is to marry the world outside us and within. That's from an essay that Johnson wrote called Beauty Redeemed, and you can download the whole article, which first appeared in Parabola magazine, um, at the website called Radical Joy for Hard Times. And if you are interested in that story and in Johnson's suggestion there, I highly recommend that article. All of these themes are going to show up in the story that I want to start telling today, which is the story of Psyche and Eros. I'm going to tell part one of this story uh, this week and the second half next week. Psyche and Eros has its roots in Greek mythology. And Psyche, which is the feminine in this story, means soul. Eros is the masculine energy of desire, attraction, union. Eros is the glue that keeps everything together, brings everything together. Now, in many stories about him in Greek mythology, he's the son of the goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love and the feminine aspect of this power of attraction. This is how he shows up in the story that I'm about to tell as the son of Aphrodite. But in versions of Greek creation myths, we're told that Eros appeared out of the initial chaos alongside Earth and is the force of attraction out of which everything was made. I really love that idea that 
you know, that's this longing for union of coming together <laughs> that underlies or is the cosmic creative impulse. The story of Psyche and Eros first appeared as a, in written form that is, as a story that was told by an old woman in Lucius Apuleius's novel, The Golden Ass, which was written in the 2nd century AD. And my version of the story is based on this telling. So right now I invite you to sit back and relax and let the story carry you and just simply notice what you notice. Psyche and Eros A certain king and queen had three daughters. The elder two were quite charming, but the youngest was wonderfully fair, so fresh and lovely that she seemed to have borne of a drop of heaven's dew. News of her beauty spread, and strangers from neighboring countries came in crowds to look on her with amazement. It is as if, they said, the goddess Aphrodite herself has come down to earth and taken mortal form. People were so captivated by the lovely Psyche that they neglected the temples and shrines of the magnificent goddess of love. Aphrodite noticed the lack of offerings and traced the problem back to this unseemly worship of a mortal girl. I am the first parent of all created things, Aphrodite fumed to herself. People should not sing praises to a mortal girl. It's not right. I will make sure that she doesn't live to enjoy it. Aphrodite summoned her son, Eros, a headstrong boy with little respect for law and order. You must avenge me, she told him and punish this girl. She will learn who is the real goddess. Go to this psyche and cast your spells. Make sure that she falls in love with the vilest of men, someone who will only bring her bad fortune. This Eros agreed to do. Eros had a quiver of arrows. He was a fine bowsman and whoever he struck with an arrow either fell in love or an intense hatred with the next person that they saw. In this way, Eros controlled to a large degree the love lives of many people. Now in the meantime, the lovely Psyche was alone and lonely. Her two elder sisters had already been married to royal princes, but Psyche had no suitors not one. Her apparent perfection induced awe, but no one had the courage to propose to such a beautiful young woman, and Psyche felt herself cursed, not blessed, by her extraordinary beauty. Psyche's parents were also distressed and afraid that they had unwittingly incurred the anger of the gods. They decided to consult the oracle of Apollo, who knew such things and could prescribe a remedy. This consultation was a very serious business, because once you got your answer, you were sworn to act accordingly. Alas, here is what the oracle told Psyche's father. Hope 
for no mortal bridegroom. Your lovely daughter will be wed to one fierce and wild, who burns with fire as hot as a dragon's breath. Her future husband awaits her on the top of a mountain. Take her there and leave her, dressed for both a marriage and funeral. This dreadful decree of the oracle filled all of the people with dismay, and Psyche's parents abandoned themselves to grief. But Psyche said, Why, my dear parents, do you lament now? You should have grieved when the people showered upon me undeserved honors and likened me to the great goddess Aphrodite. I understand now that she is the one who is aggrieved. So lead me without delay to that rock to meet my husband and my unhappy fate. The procession was prepared. Psyche wore a wedding dress, but it was a sad and solemn march up the mountain. On the summit, her stricken parents bid her goodbye and with sorrowful hearts returned home. Psyche was left alone among the rocks, panting with fear, her eyes full of tears. Who or what would come to that crag to claim her? Eros was there, of course, invisible. He watched Psyche make her slow progress to the top of the mountain. She was truly beautiful. Mesmerized, the young god accidentally pricked himself on one of his own arrows and fell deeply in love on the spot. He would be her husband, he thought. Eros called to Zephyr, the west wind, and ordered him to carry the lovely Psyche gently, oh so gently, down to the valley below. Psyche felt the soft breeze envelop and lift her up. She drifted down into a beautiful green valley. What a strange, strange turn of events. It was so pleasant there that her fear abated. She found a soft spot in the shade and fell asleep. When Psyche awoke, she looked around and saw a pleasant grove of tall and stately trees. She entered the grove and discovered a fine stone wall around a glorious garden with a fountain sending forth clear crystal waters. Beyond the fountain was a magnificent palace built with great skill in artistry. She saw no one as she approached and went inside. The palace was filled with gems and treasured, piled high in room after magnificent room. Everything she saw filled Psyche with pleasure and amazement. Such wondrous wealth, and more wondrous still, there was no lock or chain or bar upon a single door or window. This must be the palace of a god, Psyche thought. While she was thinking and wondering, a voice addressed her. Now, she didn't see anyone. She was quite alone. But this voice said, Sovereign lady, all that you see is yours. We whose voices you hear are your servants, and we will meet your every need and desire. In the chamber beyond, a warm bath has been drawn and you will find a comfortable bed. Relax and refresh yourself, and when you are ready to eat, simply clap your hands, and food will appear. 
Psyche bathed and napped, and when she awoke hungry and clapped her hands, the invisible servants served her a delightful meal. Invisible musicians played while she ate and drank delectable wines. Thus the evening passed until it was time for sleep. But Psyche had yet to see her destined husband. He came in the hours of darkness and got into bed with her with soft murmurs and tender kisses. Psyche could hear him, smell him, feel him, but she could not see him. In the morning she woke up alone. The following night was the same, and though it was unusual and strange, her husband was kind and loving, and she found her own passion with him and grew accustomed to it. In the beginning, she did ask him to stay so that she could behold him, but he always said no, that it was impossible, and that she should not insist unless she wanted to lose all that they shared together. Why should you wish to behold me, he said. Do you have any doubt of my love? Thus Psyche was happy for a time. The palace was beautiful and her every need was met. But she knew that her poor parents believed that she was dead, and that her sisters were also grieving. And although she was now wed, she was sometimes lonely during the long days, for her husband was always gone. When Psyche discovered that she was pregnant, her desire to comfort her family and share her joy filled her heart. She desperately longed to have contact with her family. When her husband came to her that night, she told them their happy news. She also asked him to send the west wind for her sisters, to bring them to her at the palace so they could rest easy that she was well, enjoy her good fortune, and comfort her parents. Eros said no. Of course you love your family, my dearest Psyche, he said, but no good will come from such a visit. Trust me, your sisters will bring harm to you and disrupt our happiness. You are happy, are you not? Psyche wanted to please her husband, but after all, she didn't ask much, did she? She showered him with kisses and renewed her entreaties until at last Eros gave his unwilling consent to the visit. I don't think it's a good idea, he said, but if you insist, I will allow your sisters to come. As it so happened, Psyche's sisters were both visiting her parents at the time and had learned of the oracle's decree and her abandonment on the mountaintop. In their despair, they went to the place, and this is where the west wind found them. He gently lifted them up and carried them, full of fear and amazement, to the beautiful garden. When their feet touched the ground, they saw Psyche, and their hearts overflowed with joy. My sister, Psyche said, I am so delighted to see you at last. Come, let me offer you some refreshment. All that I have is yours. The sisters were amazed by the palace and enjoyed the attention of the servant voices. Their youngest sister had landed in a wondrous place indeed, and they began to ask themselves what she had done to deserve such good 
good fortune. And having no good answer, their joy was replaced with envy. It hardly seemed fair. Tell us about your husband, Psyche, said the eldest sister. What is he like? Oh, Psyche replied, he is a beautiful young man and quite wealthy. He spends a great deal of time hunting in the mountains, and that's why he isn't here. I'm glad to hear it, said the middle sister, because, you know, back home they still speak of the oracle, and imagine that your husband must be some kind of monster. Yes, said the eldest. Are you sure there is nothing amiss? Nothing strange? The oracle of Apollo is never wrong. The words of her sisters fed Psyche's own submerged doubt, and she admitted to them then that she had never actually seen her husband. But he is so kind and loving, she said, I really don't see how he could possibly be a monster. Well, you must find out what kind of creature he is, her sisters insisted, for your own safety and that of your child's. You cannot keep your head in the sand. The inhabitants of this valley say that your husband is a terrible and monstrous serpent who nourishes you for a while with dainties that he may by and by devour you. Take our advice. Take a lamp and a sharp knife. Hide them. When your husband is fast asleep, take a look at him, and if he is a monster, cut off his head. It was time for her sisters to return home, and the wind gathered them up and swept them away. Psyche was greatly troubled, and she was curious. At length, she made the preparations that her sisters had suggested and waited for nightfall and her husband. When he had fallen into his first sleep, she silently rose and uncovered her lamp. There was no monster, but the most beautiful and charming of the gods. His golden ringlets washed in nectar smelled so sweet. His body was smooth and perfectly formed, and two dewy wings on his shoulders were whiter than snow. When Psyche saw Eros, she was filled with a new passion for him and yearned to truly know him. She picked up one of his arrows and running a soft finger over the point, pricked herself and fell in love with love. She leaned over to have a better view of his face when a drop of burning oil from the lamp fell on the shoulder of the god. Startled, he opened his eyes and saw the lamp, the light. Oh, foolish Psyche, he said. Is this how you repay my love? Did you think I could be a monster? Love cannot dwell with suspicion. Eros leapt up from the bed, spread his white wings, and flew out of the window. Psyche desperately grabbed onto his ankles, but she was too weak to hold on. She fell to the ground and began to weep. And when she woke up the next morning, she was alone in the countryside, the valley, the walled garden, the palace. All of it was gone.
curiosity kills the cat, we say, meaning that sometimes it's best to leave well enough alone, but we often find it impossible to do that. Did Psyche make a mistake? Was she wrong to disobey her husband? On one level, it seems so. Everything is not only disrupted, it's lost. Eros, the palace, everything is gone. But what does it mean to be in the dark, to love in the dark without seeing, without fully knowing? There are limits to that kind of love. We're meant to understand that darkness as the unconscious. And when we love unconsciously, we don't really love the other. We don't really see the other. We love what we imagine the other to be. And sometimes those are almost the same thing, and often they are very different. In Jungian psychology, we call that projection, projecting your ideal view on someone who is somebody else. Now we note that Eros was content to stay there in that unconscious state, but Psyche, the feminine, the soul, yearned for something more complete, for true intimacy. This impulse to deepen their relationship. This yearning propels her into the next phase of her life, which will be difficult, as we will discover in part two, which I will tell next week. This story is full of destiny. What is required appears. The sisters happen to be in town so that they can go up to the mountaintop to mourn Psyche and be found by the wind. We can also see a very familiar pattern in this story that sets us up for the end of this situation, and that's the beautiful palace and the garden and the servants and the crystal fountain. All of this is a kind of Eden, an Eden in a beautiful green valley. And what is the mythology of Eden? The mythology of Eden is that we begin in a beautiful place where our needs are met, where we are also innocent. And it is the fate of the human being to be kicked out, (laughs) to eat the fruit, which means to become conscious to understand more about our situation and about ourselves. So the story tells us that she's got to go, that this has got to happen. The story also suggests that the task of love, and there will be tasks as you will see next week, is one with cosmic importance and meaning. Eros, the god himself, accidentally pricks himself on one of his own arrows. He is a player in the tale, not standing outside of it, and his accident suggests that he too will be transformed. That's it for me this week, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, you can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook or feel free to email me at mythicmojo at gmail.com. You can find these stories and many others online at www.catherinesavela.com. 
Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music, to Phil Rosenberg for producing this show, and to you for listening. Please tune in next week for the second half of Psyche and Eros. And in the meantime, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.